0: Welcome to Episode 7 of Hunting for Candle Ends. I'm your host, Neil. And um, this week we have... Oh, it's a jam-packed show, you know? We have an interview that I did with Mark Orton of Tin Hat Trio. And that's coming up first. And then Part 2 of Mike Schwartz on Minimalism is after that. Then you'll hear my review of Black Moth Super Rainbow who I saw at the Magic Stick in Detroit just recently. And then there's a song. So without further ado, we'll start it off. Here's me talking to Mark Orton. And yeah, I believe this would have been 2001. Um, And the interesting thing about this interview is, um, although I I did the interview, it never got published because uh, the 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 magazine i was working for went under so this would be the first time anybody will have heard or read or understood any of the information which mark is going to give me so here we go take it away me great well um let's see you're coming in into...
1: yeah I didn't uh, find out actually what what you're from Oh
0: okay yeah I, I work for a soundboard magazine it's oh, okay. a, it's Boulder Colorado magazine right okay And it's actually kind of funny because I also I work at um I volunteer at KGNU Oh you do okay. And I know you guys are coming in to uh, to play with us so that's Yeah that's right yeah, So though,
1: actually it just got moved to a daytime thing we we had
0: hoped to do your Monday night. Oh right that actually just got moved but. All right well then I guess I won't I might not be able to see you there but that'll yeah. be cool to have you there And also you're playing at the Mercury Cafe I understand as well
1: Yeah we're playing actually three gigs mercury cafe um trilogy trilogy, i think and uh, fox theater that's great which is an opener for a uh, kind of a jam band i guess all right so well um so are you currently on tour or is it just starting um uh, we're not currently on tour we begin on october 2nd okay we do kind of a short east coast lag um uh, mostly the northeast. Yeah. And then head out to you and through the southwest and then on up from San Diego to to Seattle. Great where we end the tour
0: and have you been are you playing a lot of those sort of um, intimate settings like uh, the ones um, you're playing out no, here no
1: we're not a, it's, it's really it's a, it's a broad mix I mean like we're playing uh, something like a 3500 seat theater in Seattle mm-hmm. um, we're playing I think there's like an 85 seat room we're playing somewhere maybe in, in Boston or in Cambridge actually right know, several shows at that place but you know smaller rooms we're playing by and large, I guess, you know, between 200 and 500 seat rooms, mm-hmm. but it's always a mixed bag for us. We we um, kind of float between, like, as far-ranging venues as, like... Uh, well, we'll do like fine art centers occasionally. It depends on the project sort of but we also get booked into rock clubs and I mean it's one of the sort of the hazards of having the band. that's hard to pin down stylists. Yeah, definitely. Um, is that, you know, it's it's equally hard to present it to promoters and but uh but actually it's fun I think it's fun for us and it kind of brings out different aspects of the music depending on where we're playing. Definitely different things come out in a rock club when we're competing with uh bar noise right do in a um, fine arts center or you know some kind of classical concert hall so
0: yeah um, how do you how do you deal with like a setting when you're in a a bar or something or just you have a whole bunch of people looking for rock and roll
1: yeah I mean I think you know it's not that we I mean it's something I I would only say it in kind of a positive light Mm -hmm. you could think of it you one might think that it would have kind of negative implications because you'd have to Kelly, you set to the rock crowd and only play the more rhythmic material or whatever. No. But, and uh, we don't really see that as a negative thing. There's a lot of different um, aspects to this group sound. And um, we might not explore the sort of heavier hitting, more rhythmic stuff, which yeah. for us is stuff we love. But in a, in a uh, classical setting, we might not feel free to explore that as much. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe because we are exploring the lower end of the dynamic spectrum yeah um, but uh, and you know it's going to bring uh, there's a good deal of improvisation in the music obviously and it's going to bring out different things in the improvs um, which always keeps it fresh for us um, yeah that's another good thing if we're playing the same room night after night um,
0: I think it's great to play to different crowds for sure yeah um, you also I guess have to be ready that you might be you might have people not, not paying attention to you in a, in a
1: you know, yeah. as opposed to people watching uh, People's attention, I must say, that even in America, and we are notorious for the short attention span, yeah. um, we actually do pretty well. We have had almost no experiences. And in fact, honestly, we're kind of spoiled by it. And now when there is somebody loud in a bar, it's, it, I mean, not it doesn't throw us off, but it's always... Yeah. always talk about it afterwards. Yeah, for sure. So. Um, well, let's see. So I've... I've
0: I've enjoyed both your albums. How would you how would you describe the difference? What has changed between the the two albums?
1: Well, a lot. I think a lot has changed, mm-hmm. actually. In fact, probably more has changed um, in the group than is even um, evident by just listening to the records. Mm-hmm. Um, the the first record, for one thing, it was a There's quite a stretch of time between them. There's more than two years of time, even though the releases were spread out only by one year. Right. um, Because we shot the first one as a done thing, uh, other than the the ghost track with Mike Patton, which we did after we were signed. Mm -hmm. Um, But so that first record, the compositions, well, it's like, I mean, this is almost kind of like my, well, anyway, I'll just explain. We, In the beginning of the group, we, we Rob and I were both coming from more kind of straight jazz backgrounds, mm-hmm. even some rock settings. Carla was coming more from, we had all experiment with a lot of different things, but Carla was coming more, I would say, from like the string quartet and chamber music mm-hmm. background. And um, Rob and I definitely were used to playing with bassists and drummers and having that kind of, uh, having the pulse and a lot of the rhythm in the group taken care of, um, and then we would kind of play off of it. Um, you know, we're part of the rhythm section as a keyboardist and guitarist, but, but, um, that's, that's sort of how it functions, you know, in most groups. So we were kind of cast into these new roles where that was absent, um, and, you know, the kind of, you know, endlessly scored out interplay that happens and both well, chamber music wasn't there for Carla. So um, anyway, we turned kind of, because it's, you know, it was like a new thing for all of us. We turned to a lot of the world folk musics that um, employed like a, sim- a similar instrumentation. Things like tango or klezmer music or mm-hmm. bluegrass or Brazilian music, like photo music or something. And so we found our roles um, I nope. think early on was it, a,
0: was it a conscious effort to do that or was it more you just no, sort of playing sure. around and that's what you found you kind yeah, of
1: Yeah, yeah I mean that's, that was just kind of it was just a little bit easier to stay maybe a little closer to these folk forms I mm-hmm. mean it was never one thing about the band that I hope and, and that I it was part of the mission statement is that we never were, were not interested in being like a recreating band mm-hmm. playing a legitimate tango um, about getting back to your question that the difference between the two records is the, the first one really um, I think you can hear some of some of the influences are maybe a little bit more um, like overt or something mm-hmm. or I mean, some of the references I would I should say are a little yeah. bit more overt but they um, and then the second record it might maybe it's a little bit harder to tell on some of the stuff anyway um, and I think also on the second record compositionally it kind of loosened up a little bit Um, Mm -hmm. there's a little bit more improv on the first record and that doesn't really have a whole lot to do with what happened with the group I think it had more to do with um, the number of compositions we wanted to fit on it we'd all been writing like crazy and it had more to do with that Um, uh, and you did more also
0: did more of the production on the second album as well is that correct?
1: Yeah, you, you mean me, myself?
0: I mean, yeah, you, yourself. Right. Yeah.
1: Well, I, I would say that I actually know on both records I do a good amount of the production, oh, but right. I don't take credit as a producer except on the tracks with the vocalists where I where I just did 100% of the production. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm because I'm an engineer, you probably, have you read the bio, Yeah, I
0: read the bio. Uh, you, right. you worked for the Knitting Factory.
1: Yeah, yeah. and I worked with a lot, of, a lot of these, like that scene, a lot of people in that mm-hmm. scene. So I, I have enough experience and I'm enough of a control freak that I kind of take over when it gets to that point. Um, but we always work with another engineer. We've always worked with our manager Hans Mendel, who's a really experienced producer, um, and he's great. He's he's saved our lives on many occasions. So, um, but anyway, so uh, on the second record, I think I maybe I had a little bit more to say because just because there were more choices on uh, the first record we really did on our own um, in one setup, mm-hmm. one studio, the second record, we floated between several places, and uh, because the instrumentation was, I mean, there was like a much broader uh, palette of instruments to choose from for the yeah. second one, we kind of stretched it out, and so there was more producing to be done, I suppose. Well
0: tell me a little bit about the approach you take to composing because that's obviously something that's very intriguing to somebody listening do you i mean what do you start from i mean do you start just from a a tune or do you start with an you know an idea of what you want it to sound like what's Uh, that it
1: really yeah i mean it it kind of depends i i would say that um both both of those things are possible Mm um i think that probably um you can hear that some of them are more tuneful compositions and come from a simple melody that maybe exists almost in the jazz form of like an, a head in an improv section and then it's sort of arranged and flushed out Yeah. Um, uh, whereas there are some tunes that are just through composed don't have any improv in them and there are some tunes like Beverly's March for instance um, which is the third track on the second record mm-hmm. it's one yeah. Hendrixy thing. Yeah, for and sure. That, that came as an idea first and to, I just wanted I wanted Rob and I to sound like a like a like a, a backbeat groove that was constantly turning around. Yeah. kind of imitating a an old drummer that Rob and I played with in high school actually. Who who was actually who bad in that sense. He's turned around constantly. <laughs> and it was like in a really sort of not so tasteful way. But um, and so I think it depends, and uh, it depends on the tune. And um, I think uh, I think one thing about the group, I would say though, that is central, is regardless of how it starts, is, is the, the um, melodic sense. So we we do stick to kind of simple melodic forms and use them as springboards to stretch out um, both improvisationally and compositionally. Um, I like the idea of. I mean, it's it sort of. I hope it's one of the good sort of. Um, it's one of the good things that's come. Come of that is is just the idea that the uh, like non uh, improv listener or contemporary music listener can still latch on to things. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's why I think we get played on NPR. Yeah, <laughs> between news stories. So. Now,
0: again, would you say that when you're composing that you have, I mean, well, you mentioned Beverly's March, but is in general, do you, do you ever think to yourself, you know, it would be nice if we, if we did a nice sort of something that was had an Argentinian tango kind of in it, oh, or, or, yeah, no, or no, Eastern European? So
1: I mean, there's been a couple of times when, it's, when I've thought to myself, like, I wish that we had more of this type of sound that is inherent in the yeah. group mm-hmm. like I wish we had more music that um, that had our kind of like hyper Copeland stuff yeah. really fit C uh, you're a musician probably
0: I am a guitar player and uh, singer yeah
1: so like you know maybe maybe leaning towards that or it would be nice if we had some really driving stuff we don't have quite enough of that in the set there's too many ballads or or you know nice to have another waltz to kind of explore that side of things yeah. we really like playing in triple times um, but I wouldn't say that we ever sat down and like you know like I was saying before and, and thought like you know we gotta let's do this Balkan thing and let's put it <laughs> <over> <laughs> a Turkish groove you know, and, right. and that's it's nothing against that but for me like that's some of my least favorite stuff are these like heavy heavy world fusion things right where it
0: feels me, a little forced or, almost yeah, yeah.
1: Rob uh, the accordionist, has a term for it Didgery don't
0: <laughs> that's funny because I've heard so many things with didgeridoo like in the last couple of years oh yeah
1: <laughs> right. but uh yeah so I I wouldn't say I'd say that the way that you describe it for him might be—I don't think it ever gets quite that self-conscious mm-hmm. or quite—it's not quite that conscious an effort. Um. So um, I'm,
0: I was reading here that you know it has, has in your little bio about you—you you grew up in a musical fam- family, the son of a conductor. Were, are you, was there a lot of different types of music playing when you were a kid, or
1: did you yeah,
0: figure it out as you went along? I had
1: an older brother who. Um, oh, my dad! My dad's really into. Um, well, he's really into, into Bach and early music, but he's also really into um, American music, uh-huh. early American music, and also Copeland and Ives. And so I was turned on to that stuff at a, at a pretty young age. Um, I also had a great composition teacher growing up who not only knew everything about Brahms, but also was like knew what was on the Ethiopian pop charts, and wow. was all over the map um, in terms of his knowledge. And he had a really profound influence. And then I also had an older brother who was like seven years older than I am, so he was like a seven, 70s guy and was totally into the progressive rock stuff and made me like throw out my Sha Na by <laughs> Jethro Tull or when I was in like third grade you know so um, I, I think yeah there was a lot of different stuff going on um,
0: right it's so all sorts of influences for yeah, sure
1: yeah and then you know Rob and I grew up together and Carl and I Met actually when we were like maybe fourteen or something, and and we all three of us have always had the relationship where we kind of we tried to outdo each other with new and weird stuff mm-hmm. that to turn the other person on to you know. So.
0: Well, along that lines, yeah. what what music has recently been perking up your ears? Um. Somebody
1: else is just asked me this. <laughs> I'm listening to. You know, I'm, I'm like the worst one for this interview to ask out of the three of us. All right. Rob and Carla are really on it, and I've, I've actually been, I've been like, all summer, I've had the summer off, and I've been working on my classical, I write classical music, too, mm-hmm. and I've been working on that all summer and um, conducting and stuff, so I've been kind of in a different mode. And, yeah. Um, so I guess, like, I've been listening to a whole bunch of earlier orchestral stuff of Ligeti. Okay.
0: Can Can you tell me? You get, might as well write it down. So what's the spelling of that?
1: L-I-G-E-T-I. Okay. Um, I really love that stuff. Uh, he's one of my favorite composers. He's a Hungarian composer. Kind of like the New Bartok or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, along those lines, Elliot Carter. Um, and is an American composer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I guess, for what else have I been listening to? I, I, think. I mean, I've been listening to a whole bunch of rock stuff, and I can't seem to get over Amy Mann. Mm-hmm. That most people have at this point, it seems like. No, it's good stuff. Um, I really like her songwriting. Um, I really like her as a lyricist uh, what other stuff I mean I listen to a lot of old timey stuff so you know the Carter family and less known versions Yeah. of that um,
0: would you say I mean now that if you've been working on classical music would you say that you've been trying to listen to classical music or, or trying to avoid I'm listening to I always,
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't like the idea, I don't generally listen to music so that I can write that type of music. For sure, around. yeah. But but in terms of what I was, I mean, like Le and carter stuff, I'm listening to them for maybe for ideas more like in orchestrations or mm-hmm. um, more kind of like on the technical side of things. Yeah. Uh, like, more like how they develop things. Um, and... Yeah, I just I wish I could pull out a few more things that I've been listening to. Well, if you if you think of anything, you can just yeah. I it think up. I have your email now, maybe. Okay. Because I just I got home and checked my email, and Han sent me. I think he sent me your email, or if he doesn't, I'll, I'll get it from you. Okay. Great. Um, as
0: a as a group, have you been composing more music since, since your last album?
1: Yeah although it's rare that the group sits down and composes together right um the group will often arrange together of depending on the tune uh, it's it can be just like a bare skeleton that's really flushed out by the whole group in rehearsal um but but all the three members of the group have been composing quite a bit um I I was just t- we were just talking about the fact that I probably have enough material right now for like three more records wow um just on my own, and that's not what it's about in this group. We we share the, I mean, it is somewhat of a composer's collective, although I probably end up doing a little bit more of the work just because I've been composing a little longer. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. Are you, um, I mean, do you
0: find that you are ever writing things and think, well, you know, this is really good, but... I think I don't want to do this in this group that this oh, I need to save it yeah, for something yeah. else
1: I mean there's and there's also stuff that we try out in the group that we just decide you know this this is great but like let's save this for the record that we put out like on Zonic or something you know what I mean you mean
0: like the whole album will have a different sound to it you yeah, saying yeah
1: yeah like let's save this for I mean like you know we we do a lot of different kinds of projects we've talked about doing some puppet theater oh well um and we've um we've been doing these Starovich, um accompaniments do you know about that thing that
0: we do no I don't know about that
1: uh, we actually we've been doing silent music live film uh, excuse me live music silent film um, stuff with this uh lot somebody should actually you can if you go on our website you can um, there's a whole section on it okay um, it's just it's a guy that invented it, stop motion animation oh nice it's all bugs um, and they're dressed up and, It's Aesop's Fables stuff. It's like from 1910 Russia. It's really great. And we've been uh, touring with that. That's actually what we're doing on some of this tour, not in Colorado, but...
0: Oh, really? So, uh, so, so so bringing, uh, so playing the film and playing with it, you're saying?
1: Yeah, we play live along with it and we also have a fourth person who's a Foley artist and a cellist. Oh, wow. So that gets expanded into that. And and then the group, we have several other projects that we do. I don't know what other people have told you, but we also do a project with... uh, Um, with a brass section with like tuba, trumpet, trombone and French horn Okay. and then we also have a thing that we've just started doing with a large group with a 15 piece group that's uh, like a chamber like a small orchestra Um, and to that that, that's actually leading towards these some big pieces that we're doing with the Philadelphia Chamber Orchestra um, next year nice that's and that's kind of why. So what I what I'm getting at is that we have there's a bunch of different outlets for the group and um, the, the regular sort of touring trio stuff. Yeah, you know that that doesn't whatever people what people are bringing in doesn't always work for that. Right. Um, I don't know how that's judged. It's just not like we have some parameters. <laughs> <laughs> right. Probably just whatever mood we're in. Uh.
0: Well, let's see. I was wondering if I could get just your comments on the other two members in your band, just so so I can you know write a little bit about about them. Oh, you're
1: gonna you're gonna print it. Right. I'm just
0: kidding. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't get it at first. Um, <laughs> like Carla, I mean, t- tell me tell me what she brings to the band and et cetera. Well,
1: I mean. Um Carla, like I was saying before, um, her first strengths were in the classical world. Mm -hmm. Um, she's a phenomenal contemporary classical musician. And I think if she decided to give up all of the wild other projects that she does would be the top at that. Um, and, uh, she's she having spent years, um, doing chamber music and really being the top in that world. Mm -hmm. Um, she brings uh, the the good parts of that musicality to the group um, that are, in some ways, contrary to what to like a jazz sensibility or mm-hmm. at least a jazz rehearsal practice or lack you know lack thereof yeah. jazz rehearsal practice. Is, um, so, um, and she's also you know she's a phenomenal improviser and her her musical language or her improvisational language um draws a lot from her backgrounds in contemporary classical music so um she brings kind of like a harmonic complexity and Mm -hmm. freedom to the to the improvisations and just to the music in general that wouldn't be there otherwise also both Rob and Carla have perfect pitch um and they both have um phenomenal ears beyond just the normal perfect pitch that people have Mm -hmm. so um I would say with both of them, it's it's really because I, a lot of times I find myself in the kind of rhythmic and harmonic role, like I'm playing bass, bass, drums, and piano at once, sort of. Yeah. As a guitarist, it's it's really nice because I can I have a lot of freedom to experiment harmonically without feeling like I'm going to leave them behind, feeling mm-hmm. around for the chords because they know what they are instantly. Yeah. So it makes it really nice. Um, and Rob, um, I mean, it's often said of Rob that. He, he sort of can't play a wrong note mm-hmm. um, and this comes from his perfect pitch and this photographic memory he has he it's sort of impossible for him to play a wrong note it also probably you, know, you could talk to a psychiatrist about it there's probably some other reasons too <laughs> but, uh, no, but he he um he he has a really um morphing into many different musical styles, many different pop idioms, um, and and still maintaining his his personality, like his sort of signature with it. Mm -hmm. Um, He could easily play with Dolly Parton, or he probably plays plenty of country gigs, or he plays with Susanna.
0: Yeah, I saw that, Don Byron.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, that, that's, that's nice. Um, yeah. Well, cool. Um,
0: let's see if there's so, something else here. Um, well, so I'm, I'm understanding that there's probably not another album planned for a little while. Is that, is that
1: right? Really, no, we're recording in oh. December. Okay. And we're, um, we're doing... Uh, the record is... It's, it's decidedly more sort of American-y sounding. Okay. Um, the record's going to be called The Making of Americans. Um, and uh, But I don't know if you should print that, actually. Okay. Think of it, if that's okay. Yeah, and you mean just the title, done. or I can talk about the album, but just not yeah, the title? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, but uh, the other thing that you definitely cannot print these, but I'll tell you to give sure. you a sense is that actually Willie Nelson is singing on it. Oh wow. On a couple of the things. So and we're we've done a full orchestral thing with him and oh, that's, that's actually that's already done but he hasn't he's gonna sing on it hopefully at the end of this month. All the things have kind of crazy with recent events. Yeah. And flying and stuff. But anyway, um so and we're doing some saloon music on that, and there's going to be a really happening and famous hippie drummer guy sitting in on that stuff. Um, I'm not going to drop any more names. Okay. Anyway. But uh,
0: well, that sounds really exciting. I just yeah. bought um, Redheaded Stranger the other day, and I yeah, oh, really enjoyed it. that old stuff. Yeah, for saloon music. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No. So that's going to be fun. And we're and we're um we're also. Uh, Um, talking about doing a live release for Sonic for John Zorn's label Mm -hmm. he'd really like us to do one Um, just possibility with that and we're working on um, recording these scores that we've been performing with the Starovich films and possibly even aiming to release them with the films themselves but that's all speculative right now yeah the granddaughter owns the rights in France and it's complicated but right well that would be really really yeah. nice we're hoping that it comes through um too bad I did send you one of these videos I, maybe I'll try to get Hans to do that
0: oh, that'd be very cool I'd like yeah, to check that out I think
1: you'd really like it it's pretty amazing stuff
0: cool very nice um, yeah. I guess the, the last question just, just because I know that a lot of people at the station got got turned on to your second album, yeah. seeing Tom Waits on there. Oh, so yeah. how did your how did that collab- collaboration uh, come
1: come to be? Well, he, um, he was a he was a fan of the group, and we knew this. We have kind of mutual friends. Yeah, um, uh, Carla has played with. He's used Carla on a number. Um, cool. Uh, Rob was in a band called Orange Symphonette that includes Ralph Carney and Joe Gore. And, all right, um, all the Matt Brubeck, the people that play with Tom. So he was aware of Rob, and somehow through these different connections, had heard of us. And his wife is also Kathy's also a big fan of us, and and so we knew that. And the uh, the idea with that.
0: did it come to I mean had you already written Helium and then you
1: yeah I, you know I wrote it actually I wrote um, I wrote probably like I guess it was about seven tunes that I was calling Brazilian devotionals okay <laughs> they were just sort of written for nothing I mean I used to do a lot more singer-songwriter kind of stuff yeah
0: Mark, thank you for all yeah, the information. You're off.
1: I have like a fever and stuff, so God knows what I said. <laughs> oh, oh, great. <laughs>
0: no, cool. I think this this will this will turn out really nice. Um, so that's the end of the interview. Um, I am in contact with Mark. Hopefully, I'm going to do a sort of a follow up interview with him, um, which would have been what eleven years since I did that interview with him. So I might get to do that soon. I thought it might be funny to ask him some of the same questions I asked him then and see how is how things have changed for him. He's also uh, given me permission to use a track of his um, that will appear in the next in the next episode if I can get the get the interview going. Up next, here is. Mike Schwartz on Minimalism Part 2. He just finished talking about Terry Riley. Now he's going to move on to Steve Reich and some others. Check it out. And also... um Mike has published a spotify list for the for the first part of the the minimalist talk that he 's been giving, and you can check it out, find him on Twitter at Happy Wanderer Thirteen or go to me at candle underscore ends on twitter and there's a link to the Spotify playlist so you can um actually hear the music he 's been talking about and As we go forward, I think we'll try to use Spotify a little bit more to um, make little compilations of music, as I, I know I haven't been putting the music in the podcast. Um, I've been trying to just, I don't know, it seems like it might be a copyright hassle, so I've just been avoiding playing anybody else's music without permission. Um, but I think we can use Spotify as a uh, playlist so that you can check out the music, because uh, I guess that's what the show is all about, right?
2: Okay, time to move on to the next composer I want to talk about, which is Steve Reich. So Steve Reich is one of the more radical and adventurous of the minimalists, and he's also one of the most influenced by world and folk music as well. Um, He also studied non-Western music like Lamont Young. Um, He traveled to Africa, to the University of Ghana, to study African drumming, and he studied—he lived in Seattle here, um, actually where John Cage taught, and he studied Balinese gamelan music here in Seattle, and he also studied Hebrew cantillation, and lots of his works feature Hebrew or Jewish themes. Um, he studied that in New York and Jerusalem. Uh, he wasn't really part of any scene except, I guess, minimalism, because he worked so many different influences into his music. Um, and I guess his great innovation was the use of phasing and sampling. Uh, so he he's known for looping uh, tape loops and creating loops of different material set at different speeds, which has a a great effect uh, when listening to it. I think probably the most famous one of these or the earliest anyway, is it's going to rain, which um, it basically Reich took the voice of a Pentecostal preacher named brother Walter. He was delivering a sermon on a street corner on Noah and the flood and Reich looped this, this sermon at gradually different speeds on two different uh, tape players um creating it created this heavy sonic texture and also kind of an atmosphere of paranoia and fear with the refrain It's gonna rain repeated over and over. This is during the Cold War, remember, and I think the Cuban Missile Crisis was was then fresh on the minds of, of Steve Reich and others. Um interestingly the innovation, the phasing of this work was created by accident. Uh Reich originally intended to line up the two recordings so that one would issue It's gonna and then the other would issue Rain. However he He accidentally lined them up in unison, so they played at the same time, doubling the preacher's voice, but he noticed that one of the recordings was slightly faster than the other, which made it eventually become out of phase with the other one, and that's what created this unique phasing effect, which gets used a lot in minimalist music. In fact, Steve Reich, after It's Gonna Rain, did a piece called Come Out, which um, was similar. It utilized another black voice, the voice of Daniel Hamm, an African-American boy who was beaten up by New York police. Um, And he isolates the phrase come out uh, over and over into eight channels. And it eventually really gets psychedelic. It's pretty neat. Uh, He also, if you're looking to go further, and I would definitely suggest you go very deep into Steve Reich's work, he's got a lot of incredible pieces. Uh, He did something called Piano Phase, which had pianos moving in and out of phase with each other. Uh, I've heard it described as kind of a kaleidoscopic effect, like the music is coming in and out of focus, and it does feel like that when you're listening to it. He also did later works in this vein as well, Phase Patterns in 1970 six pianos in 1973 and most famously four organs in 1969 uh, with Philip Glass actually playing one of those organs. Uh, I should note too, I mentioned earlier this music could be really challenging for audiences at the time and quite controversial at one uh, Steve Reich performance in 1974. um, It was interrupted by a woman going to the front of the stage and banging her head against the edge of the stage shouting, all right, I confess (laughs) in the middle of the performance. Um, Steve Reich was a big influence on Brian Eno, who I mentioned kind of led me into this music in the first place. And if you ever heard um, the Heavenly Music Corporation on Brian Eno and Robert Fripp's No Pussyfooting LP, that features some of the same tape delay effects that he learned from Steve Reich. All right. Um, I didn't even talk about the most famous Reich piece or one of them, which is music for 18 musicians, very influenced by the music of John Coltrane. And I also didn't mention the fact, well, I will now, that um, Reich actually worked with the future Grateful Dead member, Phil Lesh. It's kind of an interesting anecdote. They were in a mime troupe in San Francisco in the 60s, composing the music, just kind of curious. Um, But I will say one more thing about Steve Reich and one of his pieces that's probably my favorite of all his works. Um, So Reich used to spend his early years traveling between New York and L.A., and the sound of the train wheels on this journey was a huge influence on him. And you can hear this in a really amazing piece of music called Different Trains. Uh, It's from 1988, and essentially this piece parallels the experience of Americans riding in comfortable Pullman cars, Um, to the experience of Jews in the Nazi Holocaust um, being transported on cattle cars to Auschwitz. Uh, Really quite a daring uh, contrast. And it consists of four live musicians who kind of repeat a chugging musical figure, synchronized to uh, taped string quartets. And the really key thing about this piece is Reich fills it with samples. There's samples of taped sounds of speeches and whistles and sirens, conductor's announcements, as well as the voices of Holocaust survivors. It's quite an amazing work. Um, definitely suggest you listen to it. It's There's three parts, America before, during, and after the war, and it's really, really amazing. One of my favorites. Uh, and Reich would also explore other Jewish and kind of Hebrew themes in a work called Tehilim uh, in 1981, which involves voices reading text from the Psalms, from the Bible. Um, also one more thing to say about Reich, uh, very interested in African drumming. He actually traveled to Africa and a piece of his, probably one of the more famous pieces, is just simply called Drumming and features little bongos, marimbas, glockenspiel, uh, with female voices and a piccolo. And just really, if you, if you, you don't have to listen to the whole thing because I think it's five LPs or, or maybe two or three CDs, but the final section of drumming is incredible. All these percussion instruments just join together in this amazing um, fanfare. Um, And if you're interested in his percussion work, he also did music for pieces of wood and clapping music, which basically is performed entirely by clapping hands. All right. Bear with me. Almost there. The next uh, person I'm going to talk about, Philip Glass, who I'm sure all of you have heard of. He's, of course, the best known of all the minimalists and really the most popular classical composer of the 20th century. Uh, Glass gained national fame in the 70s and 80s um, with the stage production Einstein on the Beach, as well as lots of popular records like Glassworks and The Photographer and soundtracks to movies like Koyanak, Squatsi, and Mishima, great movie, by the way, um, and also lots of work with rock musicians and, and other folks as well. Uh, what Glass is known for in terms of minimalism is extreme repetition. You know, he builds up these iterations of music and creates complex melodies with constantly changing rhythm, uh, it's very similar to Indian music, which um, Glass was very influenced by. He actually studied with Ravi Shankar. Um, there's also an interesting album he did with Ravi Shankar called Passages. Um, his his works always um, kind of open with a melody, and then that melody is repeated ad nauseum. Some people say, <laughs> um, but they do build on each other. And you know, if you think of it as musical notation, it's like it goes like this: it'd be one two, one two. One two three, one two three four, one two three four five, six, five six seven, five six seven eight, five six seven eight, 2, 3, 1, etc, etc. So you can see that it's not simply just building, but sometimes it goes back, sometimes it goes forward. Uh I find that's what makes the music compelling for me. And he's worked with just single lines doing that uh, in the piece Music in Unison and he's also worked with kind of parallel intervals in a piece called Music in Fifths. He actually has some a piece called Music in Contrary Motion where two lines play out in as exact mirror images of each other. So really kind of curious um but very hypnotic music. And also I find it also very similar to Indonesian gamelan music um which I definitely need to get into more having having kind of uh discovered that connection. So um, I'm going to skip a little bit about Philip Glass, I will just say that he did, I mentioned he studied with Ravi Shankar, worked on this film in the 70s called Chapakwa, and that's where he really got into Indian music, you know, the recurring cycles of tones in Indian music, um, the rhythmic pulses. It's a huge influence on Philip Glass. If you're looking for works to, to listen to, I mean, there's a lot of Philip Glass out there, but um i guess i'll mention a few pieces the string string quartet of 1966 is really him at his most minimal very few notes um he also did a piece called two pages for steve reich which is similar in, to that as well actually reich and, and glass were very much kind of simpatico in the 70s they got estranged later i think but um they actually had a moving company together called Chelsea Light Moving. And for any Sonic Youth fans out there, you'll know that Thurston Moore's new band is called Chelsea Light Moving. Um, probably the one piece that I could would most recommend to Philip Glass would be Music in 12 Parts, which he composed over four years. It's really long, but worth hearing. He actually invented a new sound system to, to play that piece. And you can hear the influence on people like Brian Eno and David Bowie. Um, Einstein on the Beach, I mentioned briefly before, it's a collaboration with opera director Robert Wilson. Um, I've I've heard large parts of it. It's pretty challenging to listen to. Not sure how much I like it, actually. There's really no plot to this at all. But it's made up of kind of tone poems, found footage, um, recurring aural and visual motifs, and lots of chanting. Uh, and then it's a stage production, so it has some incredible stuff happening on the stage, including like a Civil War era train is trotted out on the stage at one point. And I think the whole thing ends with the arrival of a spaceship. Not sure if that's a nod to P. Funk or not, but it's kind of a kind of an interesting work. Glass apparently went into debt making it, but it did make his name. And. If you're thinking of the Philip Glass of today, he definitely moved away from minimalism to a broader approach, but he still uses a lot of harmonic simplicity and repetition um, combined with a lot of soloing as well. And for more recent stuff, you can check out his Violin Concerto from 1988 with some incredible soloing on that. Really beautiful. And then the Third Symphony of 1995. And then in the 90s and 2000s, he's just kept doing symphonies. But check out the third symphony. It consists of a chamber orchestra of 19 strings massed together. Really, really pretty. Okay, talk about a few other composers. It seems unfair to talk only about the men uh, when there are some important female composers as well. And somebody near and dear to my heart is Meredith Monk. Um, She's had an incredibly impressive career as a performer, singer, director, vocalist, filmmaker, choreographer, recording artist, and composer. Uh, since the 60s, she's created these large multidisciplinary works which combine music, theater, and dance. Uh, I should say she doesn't really consider herself a minimalist, but I really do see her music rising out of the same tradition as young Riley Um She is also primarily known for her vocal innovations and kind of extended vocal techniques. If, it's really incredible what she does with her voice. Uh, She actually debuted with a piece in 1969 called Juice, which was a, she called it a theater cantata for 85 solo voices. And it also consisted of 85 jew's harps and two violins. Uh, Other pieces, early pieces that she's known for include Education of the Girl Child. That's a pretty neat piece that traces a woman's life back from her death to, to her birth. Um and uses dance as well as voices in it and other kind of pieces that incorporated dance and vocals include dolman music um, which is kind of written about some of these stone ancient druidic stone sculptures in Brittany, uh, and really uh incredible actually if you've ever heard um dj shadow um introducing I'm trying to think of which track it is now i'm blanking on the name of it but one of the dj shadow tracks does extend dolman music quite extensively Um, and then in the 80s she also wrote and directed two films which you can see on youtube so ellis island and book of days both are about kind of uh, a young girl in um jewish ghetto Uh, and then she's been so prolific as well just 90s and 2000s has kept composing um you also might have heard one of her pieces in the film the big lebowski Okay, so really briefly before I wind up, I I can't finish without mentioning some of the other lesser known minimalists. Um, So Morton Feldman is perhaps the next most important minimalist to the big four that I I talked about earlier. Uh, He was friends with John Cage, and he was also the first to really marry the idea of Cage's idea of chance and determinacy to uh, the more sustained tones of minimalism. You know, the Lamont Young influence, the long tones, and in the 50s, he did have some interesting precursors to minimalism. He had three pieces, intermissions, extensions, and structures that are kind of early, early um, minimalist precursors. But if you listen to One Thing by him, you should listen to the Rothko Chapel, which is really powerful. It's a tribute to his friend, the artist Mark Rothko, who had committed suicide a year before he composed it. And it features viola, solo soprano, chorus, percussion, and celesta. Um, and it's really sparse, but beautiful. Very only a handful of notes in the entire work. Uh, again, the last movement is the most powerful and just has this amazingly haunting melody. I think it was, it came from an earlier Feldman composition that he incorporated into it. It reminds me of Jewish music in the synagogue when I hear it. All right. Who else? So John Gibson, Dennis Johnson, and Terry Jennings all studied and played with Young, Riley, and Reich, as well as Glass. And if you were one work to check out among those three, check out John Gibson's Cycles. It's on YouTube. uh, Basically, a recording of him playing a pipe organ in Washington Square Church. And a critic described it as a waterfall of droning sustained tone harmonics. I mentioned John Hassel earlier. He's an avant-garde trumpet player uh, who was in the original ensemble that played Terry Riley's *In C*. He's also played with Lamont Young, and he's also studied ragas with Pandit Pran Nath, the um, Hindustani vocalist I mentioned earlier. And he was a big influence on Brian Eno. Uh, He created this kind of marriage of minimalism and world music, which he called Fourth World. It's a miscegenated mix of East and West, modern and ancient. And for one recording of him to check out, it's Vernal Equinox from 1977. Really beautiful recording. Other experimental minimalists followed Young and Riley's example of music that was influenced by the environment and even by the human body. So Alvin Lucier. His music for Solo Performer in 1965 basically consisted of electrodes attached to his head and broadcasting his brain's alpha waves to loudspeakers, uh, which were placed around the room and in turn caused nearby percussion instruments to vibrate. Pretty interesting. Uh, After the Big Four moved to New York, you had dozens of avant-garde composers flocking to downtown Manhattan. And I'll mention two of them here. Uh, Phil Niblock, who amplified electronic tones and created really large sonic landscapes. And uh, Frederick Jevski, who wrote a piece called The People United Will Never Be Defeated, which is basically created out of variations on a Chilean revolutionary song, as far as other women, um, Joan La Barbara is a she's a pioneering vocal performer, similar in a way to Meredith Monk, and uses all kinds of vocal inflections to create her music. So glottal clicks, circular singing, and multiphonics, or the sounding of multiple pitches at once. And then I can't finish without mentioning John Adams. Um, he's been called a second generation minimalist, although really I think of him as more in the romantic tradition as well with um, minimalist influences. And so his music combines the pulsing rhythms and the slow harmonics of minimalism with really large orchestras. And so there's works like Phrygian Gates and Shaker Loops, particularly worth checking out, from the late 70s. And then if you want to hear him at his kind of peak period, um, the massive opera Nixon in China, Strange subject for an opera, but he milks it for all it's worth. And he did a piece called uh, Harmonia Leher. I really don't know how to pronounce that, but um, it's uh, it's like minimalism on steroids, basically. Uh, I think it's equally indebted to composers like Mahler as it is to Riley and Glass. Um, But John Adams is probably the most accessible minimalist uh, musician. So could be a good place to start if you're finding it challenging getting into some of the other stuff. Other notable Adams works include Century Rolls, which is a tribute to old time player pianos, and The Wound Dresser, a song cycle interpretation of the Walt Whitman poem. And also mentioned Short Ride in a Fast Machine, which is really fun. It's in a kind of exciting, pulse pounding fanfare with lots of ideas and instruments just blaring. Um, and then Adams did win the Pulitzer Prize recently for On the Transmigration of Souls, which he composed in memory for the victims of 9-11. So I quoted Michael Nyman a few times throughout this podcast, and he also was a minimalist, worked more as a musicologist. Um, He wrote a great book called Experimental Music, which I referenced a lot for this. And he's also known as a composer of film soundtracks, which um, leads me to talk really briefly about minimalism and film soundtracks. Uh, So at the beginning of the 60s, minimalist music started appearing in films, and it lent itself really well to films because of its ability to create suspense and cinematic ideas of time and rhythm. And I think really with Philip Glass, that's where minimalism came to a lot of people's attention. So I mentioned Philip Glass did the scores of movies like Koyana Kwatsi and The Thin Blue Line, which is a really great score. Uh, but Michael Nyman also, so movies like The Piano and The Draftsman's Contract by Peter Greenaway. Um, Terry Riley did a couple film scores that are worth seeking out. One is called Les U Fermés, The Eyes Closed. And another is, um, called Lifespan, or in French, Le Secret de la Vie. And Lifespan is great. It's a great little science fiction movie with Klaus Kinski. Both have great soundtracks uh, on them. And Steve Reich also did, um, a recent soundtrack to Craig Lucas's film, The Dying Gaul. And if you've heard, say, recent other recent composers, for example, Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead recently did the soundtrack to There Will Be Blood, very influenced by minimalism. Minimalism also kind of overlaps with electronic music as well. And I'll leave that for another podcast, but pieces like James Tenney's Analog Number One uh, and tape music as well, which I've talked about a little bit. Um, but you can seek out Morton uh Silver Apples of the Moon. This is a really notorious. Piece. It came out in '67 and actually became a surprise hit. Um, it's this really beautiful synthesizer music, and it was heard by the Beatles and was really made um, made influential and popular by by them, I believe. Um, I'm gonna finish just by talking a little bit about minimalism's influence on pop and rock music, um, since really that's how I got started listening to minimalism. And no better place to start than the Velvet Underground. So the Velvet Underground directly borrowed Lamont Young's drones for their music. If you listen to the opening of Venus in Furs, you're you're hearing minimalism there. John Cale, as I mentioned, was in Young's Theater of Eternal Music. And um, Cale combined the experimental drones that he he gained from Lamont Young with Lou Reed's Streetwise songwriting uh, to create their early music. So um, other... Members of the Theater of Eternal Music also played on early Velvet Underground performance as well. And Angus McLeice, I mentioned, was the early percussionist for Velvet Underground. So listen to that first Velvet Underground album, All Tomorrow's Parties, I'm Waiting for the Man, and especially the Black Angel Death Song and Heroin, to name just a few. And John Cale later did an album with Terry Riley called Church of Anthrax. Actually, I haven't heard that one, so you should check it out. Um, but one I have heard that's notorious is Lou Reed's Metal machine music which is kind of a noise drone album you know some believe he just did to fulfill his his um, contract but really actually does acknowledge uh, Lamont Young and minimalist influence even right on the cover um, so Brian Eno who's kind of my gateway drug was uh, you know an art school experimentalist back in these days and he really loved John Cage Lamont Young Steve Reich and Philip glass and um, you know, was a huge popularizer of minimalism. He um, was in Roxy Music, of course, for their first two albums, and he did add some minimalist touches to those first two Roxy Music albums, especially the second one, For Your Pleasure, has some extensive phasing on it, similar to Steve Reich. Um, but Eno, of course, later created Ambient Music, which is a clear offspring of minimalism. And so in addition to albums like Discreet Music and Music for Airports, you should definitely check out Eno's music for films, which is really a great minimalist. David Bowie, uh, along with Brian Eno, attended a Philip Glass concert in 1971 and was very influenced by all of these musicians. You listen to Station to Station or his Berlin trilogy. um, He definitely incorporates minimalist influences like drones and pulses and things. Um, Also, The Who uh, with Baba O'Reilly, directly influenced by Terry Riley's keyboard studies. Um, Actually, the name of the song, Baba O'Reilly, is a reference to Terry O'Reilly and Pete Townsend's Indian guru, Meher Baba. Other bands, Bjork, Radiohead, Spaceman 3, and James Blake have all claimed minimalism as an influence. Um, I also mentioned Thurston Moore's new band, Chelsea Light Moving. But um, Sonic Youth themselves were a huge, um, huge kind of carrying on of the tradition of minimalism um, via Glenn Branca was a downtown New York composer influenced by Reich and glass and other bands continued on in that vein as well. So Jesus and Mary Chain, Spiritualized, Verve, Slow Dive and My Bloody Valentine, to just name a few. And I'll just finish by saying hip hop as well. It can be influenced, can be thought of as influenced by minimalism, especially in its use of samplings and loops. Um, you know, going back to John Cage and before. Well, thanks for listening. If you do want to seek out some, some writings on minimalism, you know, Michael Nyman's experimental music is a great place to start. Um, I also, um, got a lot from The Rest is Noise by Alex Ross and Peter Greenaway has a four composers series, which you can watch. Um, great pieces on Philip Glass and Meredith Monk. And there's another, uh, film series called Music with Roots in the Ether, which was created by the experimental musician and poet Robert Ashley and it features an excellent segment on um, Terry Riley with an extended interview and an extended performance. Um, So thank you again for listening, and I hope you start to love minimalism as much as I do.
0: And once again, Mike can be found on Twitter at Happy Wanderer 13 Up next, here's my review of Black Moth Super Rainbow, who I saw last Friday at the Magic Stick in Detroit. And I've started working for a magazine in Michigan called Here Magazine, and this is the first thing that I did for them, which was to review this concert. So um, many thanks to them for, for getting me involved. And you can read this article online at heremagazine.com or go to Facebook and you'll see all the photographs that I took. Um, there's a couple that are actually with the article, too. So if you would go ahead, like here Magazine, check out the page. I would really appreciate it. Um, but I'll, I'll go ahead and read off the, the review for you so we can have a little content here. And hopefully there'll be more tie-ins between my podcast and the magazine as, as we go forward. Black Moth Super Rainbow Bring Their Frightening Psychedelic Style to the Magic Stick. The brainchild or gut fetus of Tom Feck, a.k.a. tobacco, Black Moth Super Rainbow has been producing creepy analog electronica since 2003's Falling Through a Field. Cobra Juicy, the Kickstarter-funded 2012 album, was perhaps their most easily embraceable release. Neither out of place as an accompaniment to an impromptu light show... impromptu light show in my daughter's bedroom like a sunday or a bike ride on the first hot day of spring we burn it brings to mind disco ball reflections in a roller rink or the smell of orange soda on your t-shirt but in concert bmsr come across as pulsing frightening psychedelia less air more black angels as they brought their show to the magic stick in detroit as opener, Oscillator Bug, a mustachioed solo artist with an assortment of gadgets and a microphone, went straight to maximum DIDs, that's diarrhea-inducing decibels, for a frontal assault on the intestines. Next, the Hood Internet got the crowd fully warmed up, if not frenzied, with his mashups. Cindy Lauper with Dizzy Rascal particularly ignited the masses, as did his flashing geometric light display. A perhaps too late warning of potentially seizure-causing flashing lights preceded the introduction of insane film footage which would play behind the band throughout the night as BMSR entered and began playing Cobra Juicy's Hairspray Heart. Tobacco, mostly obscured behind his laptop, crouched to sing into his vocoder, which synthesized his voice into androgyny. Female keyboard player The Seven Fields of Ophelian stood next to him, center stage, yet demure. Drummer Ifernot played forcefully in the background, dressed in full ninja garb. Guitarist and grave faced label owner Ryan Graveface stood unassumingly to one side of the stage, as did bassist Pony Diver a stage full of quasi-anonymous stage personas united to create a powerful, intoxicating sound. The film behind the driving, sinister windshield smasher features the assault of a hapless couple, mostly from cake and shaving cream, and this anarchistic spirit seemed to well in the heart of the audience as they surged forward, making my attempts at capturing an image of the partially concealed tobacco even more difficult. Throughout the concert, whether on Starda People's I Think It Is Beautiful That You Are 256 Colors Too, Dandelion Gum's Sun Lips, BMSR inspired the audience with their mind-bending music, whether to stand swaying cobra-like at the side of the stage or hurtle their bodies surfing across the crowd. With an encore that included Cobra Juicy's The Healing Power of Nothing and Dandelion Gum's Forever Heavy, the concert came to a close. When his fans and I spoke to him after the show, tobacco was friendly and modest. However, his choice of words when I asked him to describe the night's concert did eerily echo that of the Old Testament God, who similarly, after beholding all that he had created, concluded, It was good. And to close out the show, which I guess has turned out to be quite a long one, um, this is a track I wrote called Dum Dum, and I've been noticing there's a few songs that I haven't put on here yet, even though I think they're pretty good songs, uh, but mostly because they're sort of miserable, misanthropic songs. <laughs> it's almost like I have a suite of four or five songs which are um, even more miserable than most of my other songs. Um, and I guess the, it's strange sometimes sharing those because you think, well, if someone hears this, they'll think, wow, that person um, is doesn't really like other people or doesn't doesn't like me um and i try to i'd like i always want to have a little disclaimer with my songs saying that that it's more of a snapshot into um my mood when i was writing the song or um or working on the song less than a overarching view of of how i feel about things every day so, I also tend not to write happy songs because I I don't know if you're if you're happy, I generally just do happy things, you know, like play with my kids. Um I don't sit around writing songs, but that's just me. So there's my disclaimer. So this is Miserableist song number 1, Dum Dum. Thanks for listening by the way. You can listen, you can find all my uh, original songs on Bandcamp and um go to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Email me, candlelens at candlelens.com, or go to my website, or jump up and down and wave your arms in the air. You know, there's a lot of things you can do in life. Anyway, here's Dum Dum. Thank you.
3: Goodbye. Dumb, dumb, mystery fire, Sucker who is melting Sucker who is melting away Going into something that you want to stop But you let it happen You let it happen anyway Maybe you're just waiting for that final lip, When all that remains is a stick and a dream Like a dumb, dumb mystery pot. Sucker is melting, sucker is melting away. Easter bunny lays those chocolate eggs, they never hatch, they just melt away. It's another funny symbol of the rebirth of spring. It's another funny symbol of everything. Like a dome, dome mystery pop. The sucker who is melting. The sucker who is melting away. Look. I don't have any cavities But my head is full of death and depravity While we sit to discuss this disparity Well, I hope I don't miss this one moment of clarity When that moment, when it finally comes I find the dead know nothing in the dying dumb Like a dumb, dumb mystery pot the a sucker who is melting Sucker who is melting away